Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Scott Boykin, co-founder and CSO of Outpace Bio which uses protein design to create mechanism-driven solutions that dramatically improve efficacy and safety of cell and gene therapies. Scott created protein switches and logic gates capable of modularly controlling biological function in cells and precisely targeting immunotherapies, resulting in over 20 publications and the Burroughs Welcome Fund Career Award at the Scientific Interface. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. Today we are here with Scott from Outpace Bio. Please, Scott, take us to the future. Tell us how the future will look like when you guys are really, really successful. Thank you, Edmar. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I love starting there. At Outpace, we're really playing at the interface of these two fields that are at these incredible inflection points right now. One is protein design and one is cell therapies. So I have to give just a very quick intro to proteins because proteins really are the workhorses of all life. They make, they're like these amazing little nanomachines that make all of life, life possible. And the ability to design new proteins really enables us to solve any problem that we want. Like if you want to start big and start talking about the future, we can design new proteins from scratch, custom biological functions. Really, you know, the future is limitless in terms of what we can tackle. And then with cell therapies, I really firmly believe that Cell and gene therapies are going to be the future of medicine. Cells have these amazing abilities to coordinate the functions of thousands of proteins. And, you know, compared to a lot of existing medicine, like whether it's a small molecule chemical drug or a biologic, which each undergone amazing revolutions over the, you know, past many decades and are an important part of medicine, but they're all single molecules and they're limited in what they can do. And so as we think towards the future, I really see a future where we can start to tackle complex disease and cure complex disease like cancer, things that we haven't been able to crack yet. And I think the way that we're going to get there is through cell therapies. And right now, we can I'd love to you know go into more detail about this, but at a high level, current cell therapies, especially in the anti-cancer space, you know, they've been shown to be able to be curative for a very small subset of cancers, particularly blood cancers like leukemia. But there's a whole series of challenges, of, of barriers that are standing in the way of them being able to be successful for all cancers, especially solid cancers, which are the majority of cancers. And so we're really starting to understand what are the mechanistic barriers to making those therapies curative. And with protein design, we can directly mechanistically address those barriers and come up with solutions that aren't the most expedient solutions, aren't just limited by what we can find in nature, but are custom tailored to the problem at hand and the right solution for the right problem. So as we like start thinking really big, I really see a future where this combination of protein design and cell and gene therapies really enables us to design and engineer problems to whatever we need to solve and whatever disease we need to cure. And where you guys are today, like at what, what step you are in this process of actually designing proteins? Great question. So the field of protein design has 
come a long way in the last five years and it's come a long way in the last five months, especially with recent machine learning based advances. So we're at a, we're at a point where I guess just to back up for a second, you know, I did my postdoc in David Baker's lab at UW, which is arguably the best place in the world to do protein design. And where the field was at 10 years ago, it was an enormous effort just to get the structure right. You know, proteins, these amazing nano machines, what gives them their function is this, their three dimensional structure. And just being able to design a new protein and get the structure right, have the yeah. computer model match the reality was an enormous effort. And we, we like to joke in the lab that we were designing these thermostable rocks because like they, we could get the structure right. They were beautiful, but they couldn't really do much. Maybe they could be engineered to bind something, but they were, you know, these beautiful kind of idealistic structures that couldn't really be made functional. It's only been really in the last few years that we could start to design functional proteins. Yeah. Genes and genetics and the gene part gets a lot of attention in the media and the in the genome and things like that. But actually it's just a storage of information. Like the mm -hmm. actual work is done. Everything you see around you that's alive, there's a protein involved in absolutely everything that's alive and everything that you can imagine. That's like the workhorse, the actual machines that made life possible and make everything work, everything's protein. Absolutely, almost everything, it's actual protein. So like from a pop science perspective, with most people don't know that. That's actually like either people that are like a gym bros and think about like protein as just like a way to build muscle and things like that. Protein mm -hmm. can do more. Protein is not just meat. <laughs> protein, it's a lot of things. Can do a lot of things, and from like uh, mm -hmm. the structures, from like the your your nails to the the trunk of a tree, to so many things. From materials to medicine to energy, we can do a whole lot of things with proteins. It's just a lot of things. Hundred percent, Edmar. I'm so glad that you said that. I feel like I'm listening to myself talk. You're hundred percent, hundred percent right about that, and. Uh, That's a great place to start because, yeah, in addition to all the things you mentioned, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, things like eyesight, metabolism, oxygen transport. Those are all done by proteins and kind of picking up on what you were alluding to, you know, DNA is yeah. the information storage, a kind of a high level abstraction. You can think of DNA as like the blueprint, but proteins yeah. are everything else. They're the materials, they're the workers, they're the machines. They really do all these amazing, amazing things. And the other thing, You know, talking about we're going in the future, proteins in nature, natural evolution has really only sampled a very, very sparse subset of what is possible. If you do the math, 100 amino acid protein, proteins are, you know, these, you think of amino acids like beads on a string, and then they fold up into these three-dimensional structures. And it's the amino acids that give them their, that code their structure. Mm -hmm. um, and when you do the math, you know, 20 different amino acids, you know, 100 different positions, you quickly get to a number of combinations that is just unfathomable. So the, the, yeah. the design possibility is just Crazy. enormous. And so kind of uh, picking up where I left off a second ago, you know, the field of protein design, it's only recently that we've been able to get to a point where we can start to design functional proteins and really start to make large scale structural changes that can really make, really allow us to program biology. And so it was a great time during my postdoc because it was really a watershed kind of period. And um, you know, teamed up early on with Mark LaJoy, who's the CEO of Outpace. And we had this amazing shared vision of using protein design to program 
biology. And then when you start talking cells, kind of building on this analogy too, you know, you know DNA is just the information storage. If you want to be able to teach cells new biology and fundamentally alter the biology of the cell, you have to speak the language of cellular function, which is proteins. Yeah. And even understand like, like there's, there's this big, I would say, let down after the human genome, because people thought that after like sequencing all of it, we would learn all the secrets of life. But just knowing the genes without knowing the proteins and the forms would mean that we don't know actually what the gene does without knowing the proteins in the form. So if we can know what the what proteins are there or the form of the proteins, we'll know what they are actually doing and then we can understand the whole process. Another analogy that I like to make that people sometimes talk about like nanotechnology, like the idea of like mm -hmm. actually building things from molecules and things like that. Like proteins are basically nanomachines in the end. Like they can do... Yes construct things out of actually on the molecular level, which is pretty crazy when you think about the possibilities of constructions and things that we could actually make out of like, instead of like designing from the outside, we borrow up, create new materials, new things. So this is pretty exciting. Like a lot of people have seen the news about like the alpha fold thing in AI, like how mm -hmm. How that was like being a specialist in the field. How much is this like alpha fold thing hype and how much it is like actual like a breakthrough in the protein thing? It's a great question. I think it's, you know, kind of both simultaneously. I mean, it's, it is a huge breakthrough. And I think for people who aren't in the field, and this has been true for protein design based methods, I think for a long time is people tend to either severely overestimate or underestimate what they can do. And it, a lot of that is because the methods can't tell you at least not yet. Machine learning is amazing, but I still think we have a ways to go where the methods have a long way to go before they can tell you what to work on, what is the right application. And so you have to be able to wield the tools and use the methods in order to solve the problem. And, and in protein design, we need those methods. We can't do those calculations and those predictions without those methods, but um, there's still a real deep science and a little bit of an art knowing how to apply it to the right problem. And I also want to just pick up on something you said a second ago too, like nanomachines. That's exactly, I think a protein design is really the nanotechnology that really works. And it does open that future where you can really design for, for anything. And when you think about that, like in what you guys are working on the software side of, of building the, the design, designing specific proteins, are you guys building like a plot of, platform for other people to design where are you in the two chain or the supply chain of this future the future like protein engineering field like where you guys would be on the like the supply chain of this probably big area of development great question so we have some of the best protein designers in the world at outpace but it's a relatively small part of our team and so we have people that are at the bleeding edge of new method development. But at the same time, we're really focused on the applications. And so we have this amazing interdisciplinary team that spans everything from computational biology and protein design to immun deep immunology and cell therapy expertise, to being able to design you know, synthetic biology and circuits and feedback control into the cells. To, and we have a symbiote boundary that enables us to rapidly iterate. And so we have an amazing team of core protein designers 
Brian Weissner and Bobby Langan are, are two of the main ones. And, you know, they also came out of the Baker Lab with Mark and me. And we were all, you know, together with our colleagues at the forefront of a lot of the methods development. But a lot of what we're focused on now is honing those methods and applying them to the right problem. And it's a community effort. Like you mentioned AlphaFold and there's a new effort, OpenFold, that's really exciting. And yeah. there's new, you know, machine learning protein design methods coming out of academia every day. And, you know, it's a, it's more than any one company can keep up with. It's more than what one lab can keep up with. So I'm, you know, a big supporter of open science where it makes sense. And this is totally an, uh, an effort where it makes sense. And it's a community driven effort. And it's just been amazing to see with the methods development, the community that's forming around it, and then companies can really take that and, you know, apply it to the right problem. And that's where the secret sauce and the proprietary development comes in. Just one explanation first that I would, I think would should, would be good for us to point out, like the alpha fold thing, it's like a deep mind, which is like a subsidiary of Google created this algorithm, like to predict mm -hmm. the form of proteins, which is one of the biggest problems in biology, because you need to know the form to know the function. And just by looking at the DNA, you cannot know the function. This was one of the biggest things. And it's still like a big problem. And then they created this machine learning. I think that would be like the biggest example of like actual machine learning being used in science in a big, big way. I think one of the mm -hmm. biggest wins that we have seen. So it's this is how it works. And the first thing that I thought when I read the AlphaFold paper and the news was, was that could we do the reverse of it? Because mm -hmm. if we can do the reverse, what they do is that you have sequence form. Mm -hmm. Could you just reverse it? I want this at that form. Give me the sequence, which would be amazingly useful. Is what you're getting at. Yeah. This would be amazingly interesting. If you say, I want a form X, give me a D Because producing the DNA is not that hard. You can synthesize mm -hmm. the DNA in, and then put in a bacteria or whatever to make the protein you want. That part's, I mean, it's not trivial to do that. You need to have a trained uh, team of people, but we humans as a race know how to do that part. But the other side, the other part around like telling which form can generate to which DNA sequence, how how close we are to this, like the, the reverse problem. Great question. And so, you know, conceptually, you're spot on that protein design is the inverse of that problem where you start with structure and then you're trying to come up with the amino acid sequence that's going to code for that structure as opposed to the other way around. But the big limitation there is that you have to know what structure you're starting with and yeah. coming up with the right kind of a um, backbone, blank slate, black backbone uh, structure to start with is a hard problem. And then even harder than that is if you're trying to solve a specific biological or medical problem, you know, you need to be able to say, here's the function I'm designing for, then here's the structure I need, and then what is the back calculation? And so the, the protein design methods, there's been actually um, some huge advances in the field of protein design, machine learning protein design, just in the last few months. Um, one of them is this uh, protein MPNN that was just published. But there's not a complete end-to-end -end solution yet. You still need You still need ways of coming up with what is the right starting structure for the problem at hand. And then once you have that right structure, then the methods for doing the back calculation of like what's the best amino acid sequence for that structure 
those are starting to get pretty good, but even that still has a ways to go. And it's only been recently that there's been this kind of inflection point in those methods becoming really, um, really good. This would be my follow-up question. Like how good we are right now to, let's say, I have this particular reaction that happens in the cell or this particular chemical reaction. I want mm -hmm. to build a protein that would accelerate that reaction. How close we are to look at the a reaction and say, I want a protein to accelerate that. And here's the form that I need. And then given the form, I would have the the reverse that mm -hmm. you could do for things like alpha folds, just given the form, the sequence. But it's still you need to know what form you would want to give a particular result, right? So mm -hmm. there's like a database for that. It's just like more like try and error where we are in that, that particular part. Yeah, so what you're referring to is really enzyme design. And I would say if it's a, if it's a very well-studied chemical interaction and if there's known enzymes that already catalyze that reaction, it's very straightforward, either by design or especially with direct evolution, to optimize and improve that chemical reaction. But if you want to do like a de novo enzyme design, like a protein completely from scratch that's going to take on a new chemical reaction that we still have a ways to go as a field or closer than we've ever been. And with these new machine learning methods, frankly, we're, we're closer than I thought we'd be if you had asked me this question three years ago, five years ago. And I think we're going to see some amazing advances in the next couple of years in terms of enzyme design, but we're not there yet. It's still a, the type of thing where you, you know, you need a lot of trial and error and empirical testing and optimization if you want to design something that is, is going to catalyze a new chemical reaction. And I'll, I'll just add to like the amazing success of the new structure prediction ML methods like AlphaFold. It's truly incredible. But I think what's most exciting is where we're going next, which is the ability to predict protein-protein interactions. And then also the new design-based methods. Because like you actually made a, a really nice reference to this earlier, Admar, where you, you mentioned like the promise of the human genome fell flat a little bit because It just didn't unlock all the secrets we hoped it would. And one of the big reasons for that is because, you know, originally they thought we had like a hundred thousand genes. It turns out we only have like around 22,000 and part, and also like, you know, we have the same number of genes as like a mouse, for example. And yeah. part of the reason for that is that it's proteins have these amazing functions on their own, but what really defines their function is how they interact. And you've got everything is context dependent. You have proteins talking to other thousands of other proteins and inside a cell you have these incredibly connect connected networks and that creates enormous complexity trying to study it but also creates enormous opportunity when you can start to be able to intervene in that world and engineer it yeah and and they can even be like building blocks right they can combine itself and create like a bigger machinery as well in some in some cases there's those cases as well which is make it even more complex when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True. True. We need to understand better how they connect and like Lego, Lego pieces combine together mm -hmm. to see how we can create like even more complex types of, of machines from the, the structures. Absolutely. And some of the, like, and, and it turns out that that alpha fold and, and Rosetta fold and some of the existing methods can already do that quite well. If you just, take two proteins and like connect them with an artificial string of flexible amino acids. It's amazing how out of the, how well they can do out of the box. And there's a bunch of new exciting methods that are in development for being able to 
tease out a lot of those interactions because a lot of proteins, you don't know what their functional structure is until you see them in the context of all of their interactions. Oh, I see. And how did you start this company? Tell us a little bit about how it was like when you decided to start the company and, and how, how was the beginning, like the gist of, of, the, of this, this company? Absolutely. So for that, I have to go back to, I mentioned earlier, you know, I was doing my postdoc in the Baker lab. The first problems I was tackling there were new computational methods that opened the door to be able to design the first protein switches and being able to really, you know, together with a lot of my colleagues, took the field of protein design from being able to design just the structure to being able to design these functional de novo proteins, things with moving parts. And I mentioned Mark, who's the CEO of Outpace now. We had this amazing shared vision how we could use protein design to program cell therapies. And we struck up a fantastic collaboration with Stan Riddell, who's one of the pioneers of CAR T-cell therapies. And the short version of that story is that it just became immediately clear that there was so many problems in the CAR T-cell space that we could address with protein design was growing into this amazing collaboration. And then this was also right around the time that Rick Klausner and Stan were formulating what would become their next company, which is Lyle Immunopharma. And so, you know, Rick and Stan and, and Crystal Makel and David Baker, then together, Mark and myself had this amazing opportunity to apply our technology and be scientific co-founders of Lyle. And happy to talk more about that. But basically, yeah. Lyle is an anti-cancer T-cell company making huge headway in that space. And so we co-founded Lyle. We ran a group there called Protein and Cell Engineering, where we were focused on not only the basic protein engineering needed for the cell therapies going towards the clinic, but we were really also the long-term technology development group, which was really exciting. And, um, you know, what's, that's what we, that's what we're all about. That's what we want to do. And then in the summer of 2020, we made the win-win decision with Lyle leadership to spin out into our own company, which is now Outpace and been an amazing opportunity and it allows us to be able to take our technology and our platform and really you know deploy it broadly across the whole cell and gene therapy space because that's really the, the things that we're working on and that's been the dream all along is to be able to take this technology that we're developing and apply it in ways that are going to solve problems that improve all cell and gene therapies you know where the goal is to get our technology into patients. That's definitely the goal. We're working on things internally that are their own drugs, their own assets, but we're doing it in a way that validates our technology. And in addition to our own internal pipeline, enables us to have these win-win partnerships that allow us to go much bigger than we could on our... Happy to go into more detail there. I'll stop stop there. But that's the kind of the Cliff Notes version of how Outpace got started. Have you thought about like when, when you started in biotech and starting this path, had you thought before that you would end up founding a company or not? For most of my career, no. I was, you know, I was a dead set on staying in academia. I wanted to be a professor, have my own academic lab, which I think still would have been a really fun path. But it quickly became apparent to me that the best place to do science when it's done right is a biotech startup, is a deep tech startup. I, I And I firmly believe that and I have no regrets. And, you know, this opportunity to co-found Lyle and then spin out Outpace. It's truly what I want to be doing. And I know that what I'm doing there is having a far broader and bigger impact and a much more direct route to patients than I ever could have had staying in academia. 
Yeah, I think that the, the route to, to patience and to actually making your research into something that changed people's lives, definitely it's, I would not say easier, but I would say more possible when you have like a company because you are close to like the bringing it somehow to the market, right? To bring a thing that people can actually use and, and do. Definitely, I, I agree with that. When you decided to get into biotech earlier in your career, when you said actually studied, mm -hmm. what was the trigger for you and what was like the, the decision-making process in, in how a person end, uh, ended up being a protein designer? Like how, how is the process of, of getting into this career path? Like your dad wanted you to be a lawyer and you come home someday <laughs> and get to dinner. Dad, I want to be a protein designer. What? What do you want to do for life? <laughs> Design what? <laughs> How, 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 how it happens. It was definitely a very, you know, windy road for me, not a straightforward path. And I think oftentimes the best paths are. So in, in undergrad, I was lucky I went to a you know small liberal arts school where I could explore a lot of my interests. And I ended up changing my major several times, I actually started as a music major. It's a whole nother story, but I ended up double majoring in computer science and biology. And when we were chatting in our intro, I, I know you had kind of a similar interest in path more, which is really cool because at the, the time that we were going to college, um, that combination of computer science and biology was still very, very new. And, and I think I was actually the first person to graduate from my school with a double major in those two fields. But I, I knew I wanted to combine them because I just, it was right, you know, the human genome project was just wrapping up during that time. Like it was clear computational biology had this enormous promise. And But I didn't know 100% what I wanted to do with it yet. But I knew I wanted to do science. I fell in love with research, did my PhD at Iowa State in computational and structural biology. And there's where I really fell in love with proteins. And I studied basically proteins, immune cell signaling from a protein structural perspective and really fell in love with proteins and all the amazing things that they can do. But I've always been very much a creative engineering type. Like I always liked I want to understand how things work so I can, I can design and create new things. And so it was during my PhD that I started to read about protein design. And the more I delved into that, it was just really clear, like, this is what I have to do. This is what I want to do. And this ability to be able to design new biology and engineer new things just really captivated me. And um, and, you, and you joked about like talking to the parents and like you, you mentioned like nanotechnology. When I was in high school, like, You know, I read all this like popular science stuff about nanotechnology. And I was really captivated by that. Like But it's like Eric Drexler and things kind of, like that. Yeah, yeah, and things like that, and, and other other things. And um, at that time, you know, it was more of just a uh, all just like dreaming, right? But then it was just really clear that protein design was a path to being able to really do nanotechnology right and open up all these doors. And so I um, was lucky for my postdoc able to go to David Baker's lab, the Institute for Protein Design at um, University of Washington. And, you know, haven't, um, haven't looked back since and just like really uh, that explanation I just gave you is kind of, I think the, the moment where I really knew I wanted to do protein design, because in a way it kind of was the perfect way of combining all of my passions, but also yeah. was the way that I really saw this enormous opportunity of being able to create and, new and things that could have an enormous impact on the world. I think the timing is important as well it's because like it was around the time that it started to, to look that it could be possible to do that. 
Because if you think about like 40 years ago, protein design was still like a thing that was too too far away, maybe. But like we're starting to get into this timing now where it's actually possible doing that because it's a little bit sci-fi-ish when you think about the idea that you can actually design a protein. It's like it's in it's out up there in the in the limit of, of technology that we can do, which is pretty cool actually. And do you have any advice for people starting? A deep tech company, what would you say for someone like going through this path? It's a great question. I think I have lot, lots of advice. I think one is make sure that you have the right application and the right business model. Because I think so many people, you know, like myself, like protein design and like, and also like, you know, the platform that we developed during our postdoc that became foundational technology at Lyle, that when you have something that has so many open-ended possibilities, you need to find the right application to focus it on. And if you're going to start a company, you have to have the right business model. And for deep tech and new technologies, that can sometimes be really hard to find that killer app. And you have to find it and, and seize it and, you know, talk to the right people, the right sounding boards and hone that because, you know, we're living in an age where, you know, there's these amazing platform technologies, but you, you really need to be able to focus it in the right way. And then I guess another piece of advice um, that's been a big learning part for me is that, you know, especially if you're coming from academia, you do have to have really intense focus and prioritization because a lot of us coming from academia, you have this intense, what makes you a good scientist is this intense curiosity and being able to chase down the right answers. But starting a company, you really have to be laser focused and have a, you know, a, un a united vision and know where you're going and how you're going to get there and be incredibly driven and not distracted. And, and I guess and that's the last thing I'll say is you, you really need for building a company and building a great culture. That's so important too. And I could talk for hours about that, but you, you really need a united vision that everybody can buy into where everybody at the company knows how they fit in and, you know, feels like they're really a part of it. And, you know, even the day-to-day -day work that they're doing, it's clear how that fits into the big picture and into the mission. And you're all building that thing together. Scott, tell us one thing that surprised you after you started this company or what wasn't expected after you started this? Another great question. One thing comes to mind is just how fast the field is moving in an incredibly exciting way. Both cell therapies and protein design, it's it's an amazing wave to ride and we're right at the, you know, the crest of it, right at the bleeding edge of it at outpace, but how fast things continue to develop has, it continues to surprise me in a really exciting way. Another, another thing that surprised me too, I think is just how much I like it. Like I was telling you a, a second ago for most of my career, I was dead set on staying in academia, but I have no regrets and I'm not looking back. I really do believe that with the right startup, that's the best place to do innovative, meaningful science. And the type of people that you hire, you need to hire people that are really, really technical and really, really like know what they are doing. There's something that you look for when you look for like technical people to bring on board from academia. Like there's a, like a profile of researchers that would work better in a startup environment and others that would not. Like how do you sort that out? It's a good question. I don't think there is a particular one size fits all phenotype. I think, I think there's a lot of academic scientists who can learn to be even more amazing in industry in the right environment. 
I think, you know, first and foremost, they have to be passionate. They have to be driven. They have to have the right skill sets. They have to know how to solve challenging problems. But yeah, that it's really, it's a really hard thing to articulate because I don't, yeah, I don't think there's a one size fits all thing. And one thing that does not a direct answer to your question, but it kind of yeah. stands out to me is that one thing that I miss from academia is the training aspect. Because when you're at a new startup, you have to move very, very quickly. And there is still room to train people and you do still need to foster people's career developments. That's really important. But you know, you don't have time to spend like two years teaching somebody how to do protein design. You oh yeah. To, yeah. You need to be able to find people that have not only the the drive and the passion, but have the right skills and know how to solve the problems. And and that's one of the amazing things about a biotech as well, is that you can hire an amazing team of the right scientists and the right expertise and move much, much more quickly than you could in academia or other environments. Yeah. And what people get wrong about what you guys do when you explain to other people this company, what people consistently tend to get wrong or there is anything that people tend to get wrong? More great questions. One very little one, but a lot of people like like to like see our name and call it Outspace. We're Outpace. But I, I think on the protein design side, I think one... I read Outspace from the first time I read the company name as well. You are not alone. And so um, <laughs> the, to be very clear, it is Outpace. Outpace, okay. We are, why, we are Outpace why, why, we are biology and we are... Why people... Would, I don't know why I thought about Outspace. There's, there's no reason. Outpace is so more... It's easier to say. I don't know why I thought about Outspace first. I don't know why. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's all, I think it's just one of those like verbal things, you know, like, uh, but, uh, anyway, that's, that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. I think, um, in the protein design space, I think one thing that people actually, in, even beyond protein design, you know, like, cause especially what we're doing at Outpace is we're really, we're really playing in a unique space where we're bringing protein structure and protein design to this immunology and cell therapy space in a way that people really haven't done before. You know, there's a lot of the protein design has been focused on biologics, a lot of the cell therapy world has been, you know, crafted by amazing immunologists and clinicians, but people that don't have the protein design expertise. So like, we're really putting things together in a unique way. And we have these amazing design capabilities, not only protein design, but, you know, synthetic biology and engineering these new properties into cells. And so that's a long intro for, I think the thing that a lot of people get wrong is a lot of times the thing that people think is really hard for us to do is actually quite easy. And the thing that people think might be easy is actually really hard. And you know, especially, you know, early on, we would have amazing conversations with people where, you know, you talk to the experts in the field for, you know, a particular type of disease or a particular type of cell therapy. And when you really start to understand the questions, you just get into these really cool conversations where things that they didn't even think were possible are possible. But there's also the flip side where it's like, oh, well, that, that must be easier for you to do right. And it's like, oh, no, that's actually really, really hard. But then through those conversations, you get to some amazing places and really like where we're going at Outpace, you know, we've gotten to an amazing place where we really understand the mechanistic barriers that are standing in the way of these curative cell therapies that we can address with our protein design capabilities. But getting there is not easy. And I think a lot of times people get wrong, you know, the things that are seem hard aren't necessarily and vice versa. I think that there's one thing that is interesting about that thing that they're doing. Probably there's a lot of problems in a lot of fields of health science, biotech, biology, 
that were impossible to solve before that now would be possible because of protein design that people don't know yet that it's possible now to tackle. So there's going to be a really interesting couple of years from now on. People cutting on that some, it's a little bit like when they discover a new, like a new math technique that a lot of problems were unsolvable. And then you just develop a new one and then you can go cracking. That is like this phase of searching for all the places where you can just use that technique to, to solve the previous unsolvable problem. I think that we're going to see something like that with protein design, a lot of like diseases, a lot of problems in, in, in biology that would be once unsolvable become solvable with the, the protein design part, which would be quite interesting to see in the next couple of years. I think you're right, Anmar. I think we are going to see that. And I think you're going to see outpace at the forefront of that, as well as a bunch of other exciting technologies and exciting companies. And um, it's, yeah, it's going yeah. to be a, continue to be a wild and exciting ride. We are getting to the end and I have my two last uh, questions for you. So mm-hmm. first, do you have any book, TV show, comic book, game, movie recommendation for us? Anything? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm a huge music fan. That's my passion outside of uh, science. I love jazz. I love really all types of music. I love writing music. Are you like asking like, what am I like watching or listening to right now? Yeah. Yeah. What what are you listening right now? Yeah. This would be a good recommendation. Off the top of my head, things I was listening to most recently are uh, Snarky Puppy, which is kind of like a modern jazz fusion group that I like. And, uh, And also there's a group I like called Big Gigantic. Was just listening to them actually this morning. They're like kind of EDM, but like with some uh, jazz and improvisation and cool beats. What a nice, in. what a nice cool name! Big gigantic. I like the name. Yeah, I like the sound of it. Big um, gigantic is good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a good, good questions. Put me on the spot. I could, yeah. I could talk music yeah. for hours. But that's a <laughs> gut one of what's on top of my head. And my last question for you: If you are able to send one message to everybody on Earth. What would it be? That is a very profound question. Like right right now, if everybody was listening to this podcast, what's the one message I would send to everybody on earth? Yeah, everybody on earth. If you could send just one message to everybody, what would it be? Oh my gosh. I think, I mean, I have a lot of scientific things that come to mind, but I think I'll go in a non-science direction. I think I would say, be kind to each other and try to understand each other. Because I feel like the current, you know, there's been a, a lot going on in the world right now, especially in the past three years. And I feel like, yeah. especially politically, you know, there's just, uh, things are just becoming, and even more than just politically, things are just becoming so divided. And, you know, I think a central tenet of doing good science is, you know, deep understanding and collaboration and communication. And I think we need more of that in the world. And so I would, yeah, I think, you know, put me on the spot, I would say, be kind to each other and try to understand each other and let's not be so divided. Yeah. Great message. I would like to put that for everybody as well. It's a good message. Thank you so much, Scott. It was like amazing conversation for you. I hope down the line we could like do a second episode in the future. Just show the progress you guys will make. It was like, I really excited for you guys. I really want to see this thing happen. It sounds like a future that I would like to live in, a future where we can actually design proteins. It's going to be cool. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Edmar. 
Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.